morning. I'm going to encourage you as we continue to worship to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, specifically verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It seems as if there's tremendous disagreement in our land, and one thing in the midst of a divided land that most people can agree, agree upon is that there's not much that we can agree upon. Uh, that we're living in a fractured day. We're living in a divisive day. And that seeps in to families. It seeps into communities. It seeps into school systems. It seeps into churches. There's been no lack of conversation around and uh, a host of hot-button topics where there seems to be a lack of consensus, not just in our country, not just in our land, but also in our churches. There are churches that have splintered. There are churches that have fractured. There are churches that have split over differing opinions about, and you can just fill in the blank. You can fill in the blank with, with the latest social media posts. You can fill in the uh, blank uh, about the latest perspective uh, upon a, a host of things that you read about, you see, and their differing opinions held so strongly that there seems to be no path toward unity, no, no path toward understanding. Now listen, disunity, fracturing, that, that did not start it was not birthed 18 months ago when, when, when many of us felt the, the uh, pandemic of COVID was, was here and was affecting people. It, it didn't start then. I mean, it's as old as Adam and Eve. It's as old as, as Cain and Abel. Division, fracturing, disunity. These are a part of, of the human experiences as sinners. And it's, it's embedded in, in all of us. We, we have the temptation to fracture. We have the temptation to push away from unity, even within the body of Christ. Now, this isn't new. It's not just new because of Adam and Eve. It's not just new because of Cain and Abel. It's not new because the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to a church, a church that he dearly loved, a church that he, he longed to see again, a church that had his full affection and, and full adoration, he has to write to them for one prevailing point that is going to emerge in chapter 4 when he name drops in his letter two women, Judea and Syntica, and says, come together right now. Be reconciled to one another. So what we begin to see in the book of Philippians is that this is a book for a divided people. It is a book for a fractured people. It is a book that is calling to unity. What can unify us in such a fractured day? What can bring about a, a sense of, of clarity when there's so much chaos and there's so much confusion that is, that is screaming for our allegiance and screaming for our attention? And Paul says, let me, let me lay the foundation. He's going to get to the specifics in, in chapter 4, but in chapter 2, he is laying a foundation that the body of Christ can seek unity in, and that unity is found through a pursuit of Christian humility. Listen to Paul's words starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, Paul is saying that true unity is found in the pursuit of humility. True unity in the body of Christ is always found when Christians pursue humility. When they, when they uh, think in the way that Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, we say, Paul, that's, that's a whole lot easier to preach than it is to actually practice, and Paul would get that. That's why he starts in verse 1 with what brings us together, because there's a temptation to over-exaggerate what pushes us apart. There's a temptation for us to forget all that we have in common and to maximize what distinguishes us and what separates us. So Paul, in sort of a rhetorical if-then structure in verse 1, he, he is calling the Philippian church to answer some questions. He is saying, hey, is there any encouragement in Christ? And the Philippian church would respond, well, you know something, Paul? There is encouragement in Christ. Is, is there any comfort from love? And the Philippian church would say, you know something, Paul? You're right. There is comfort in love. Was there any participation in the Spirit? And the Philippian believers sitting in those first century pews, they didn't have pews, but you get the point here. They would say, you know, you're exactly right. There is comfort in love. Well, what about participation in the Spirit? Do you have that together? And they would say, yep, you're exactly right. Well, let me ask you this. Is there any sympathy for one another found in and through Jesus Christ? And they would have to say yes, yes, and yes. And Paul has them where he wants them. Five gospel blessings that unite them and that pull them, not apart, but pull them together under the banner of what they share in Jesus Christ. In divisive days, there is a temptation to maximize what distinguishes us in the church. It is, it is a temptation to push each other apart if we don't see eye to eye on things that are not the main thing. Paul is calling the Philippian church to the main person, what unifies them, and that is Jesus Christ. Hey, one, one thing that I love and one thing that you love is ice cream. I tell you, one thing I love about living uh, or being here at Dawson is I've got two ice cream places just right here that I can walk to. I've got Big Cream, uh, big cream uh, Spoonery right there, and we've got Edgewood Creamery right there. And I don't know about you, but I'm really, really glad that when I walk into either of those establishments, either of them, I come in there and there's an assortment of flavors. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, could you imagine if strawberry got its way? And it would be strawberry. I'm going to tell you, if, if, if strawberry had its way, strawberry would say to all the other flavors, you're inferior. You're inferior to me as a flavor. There needs to be one flavor in the establishment of what we consider ice cream, and it needs to be me, strawberry, the best of ice creams. And I would say, I would say, I know all of you would agree with this, but strawberry is a little pompous, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree with this? Strawberry is a little conceited. Strawberry is, is at best a third-tier ice cream. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. I know there's a fight in words. I know. I know. I've, I've gone where I shouldn't go. I'm, I'm stepping on toes right here. But could you imagine if strawberry uh, said, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit of petition here so we can kick cookies and cream out of the, the, the whole establishment. Cookies and cream can't even be an ice cream because it's an inferior ice cream. We would say, hold on, strawberry. You've gotten ahead of yourself. 
You're maximizing what distinguishes you, and you're, you're forgetting what unites you. Strawberry, cookies and cream. I mean, you've, you both share sugar together. You both share cream together. You both share milk together. you got a whole lot more that brings you together than what distinguishes you. You get the point. Now, listen, don't chase down this analogy too far right here, but you get the point. Aren't we grateful? Aren't we grateful that even what unites us is greater than what distinguishes us, what we hold together. Paul is saying, you better believe that. That's the foundation. What holds us together is greater than what distinguishes us. So based upon this foundation, there's a commendation in verse 2. Complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice the repetition of one here. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind doesn't use the word one, but the same essence of it four times right here. He repeats himself by coming back to same mind and one mind. You get the point, right? You've got to work for unity. You've got to work for it. Paul says, in, in a surprising way, complete my joy. He doesn't say complete Christ's joy, complete the Spirit's joy, but there's this pastoral uh, provision there's this pastoral love. He, he, he is saying to the Philippian believers, I hear of the division in your ranks, and, and it brings heartache to me. It brings anguish to me. I, I want through the power of the Holy Spirit for you to be on the same page. So complete my joy, he says. Well, you say, well, Paul, how in the word world can Christians complete that joy, be on the same mind, be in the same love, have full accordance with one another in one mind? And he says, I am so glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked because there is a path that is really practical. It's not just closing your eyes and wishing upon a star. It's not just closing your eyes and trying to speak it, ex cathedra, into existence. It's not just words. It's actions. It's you and me deciding to do things and to repent of things that, that are, are, are spirits within us. He says, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, verse 4, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see what Paul is saying, church? Do you see in verse 3 that he is saying the secret to Christian unity is found in the pursuit of Christian humility? That the secret to Christian unity is found in the pursuit of of your humility and of my humility, of our humility. Well, I don't know what humility means. Well, Paul says, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm for you here because I'm going to define humility. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, Paul is not saying that your interests aren't important. He's not saying that we're to be doormats that get walked upon. No, your interests are important. My interests are important. Your opinions are important. Your preferences are important. We all have preferences. We all have opinions. We all have interests. But they cannot be the first and foremost, the most important thing. Because if they are, if they are in a marriage, if they are in a family, if they are in a workplace with believers working together or in the church, if our preferences become our number one priority, it will paralyze a pathway to Christian unity. It's just the truth. When our preferences, which you're going to have, that I'm going to have, you're going to have preferences in marriage, 
You're going to have preferences in, in your family life. You're going to have preference. And all of these things are good, and, they, and, and they're things that we need to pursue, and they're things that we hold dear. But when they become the number one priority, they become a roadblock, an obstacle to the pursuit of Christian unity. I mean, you see this in marriage. I mean, you, you have uh, two sinners saying, I do, to one another. A beautiful dress, beautiful tux, no doubt. Hair is done up. But, but for all practical purposes, what this is, is two sinners standing before a holy God saying, I do, to one another. When I do premarital counseling, I oftentimes ask a couple, what did you see in this person? What did you see in this person that led you for the husband to get down on one knee and say, would you marry me? And then sometimes in the starry gazes of sort of uh, premarital counseling, somebody would say, well, she is just perfect. And what I do is, is I kick them out of my office when they say that. <laughs> no, I don't do that. But, but hey, listen, they know they're not perfect, but there is, there is a blindness sometimes to the imperfections of our spouses, of our children. We know this. How long for those of you that have been married understand that you married a sinner and that a, a sinner married you, that both of you are sinners saying, I do to one another. And when your, your vehicle of your marriage runs out of gas and it's sputtering and it breaks down, on the side of the road, our sinfulness and our selfishness, it sometimes shows itself. Because in that moment, we think to ourselves, you know something? If, if he or she would just get their act together, then we would have a whole lot of fuel for the journey. If he could just better meet my needs, if he could just better show me, or if she could just better show me affection or tenderness or admiration, then, then we, would, we would have the fuel for the journey. But what is the problem with this? It doesn't take into account what Paul is saying here is that the very secret to unity isn't in I, me, and mine. I, me, and mine, it is important, but it's not the final say. It is, in, in accordance to the Apostle Paul, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we have to be men and women on our knees thinking of others' needs ahead of our own needs. This shows up in church. This shows up in marriage. It shows up in family. Where we have to ask these kinds of difficult questions. What best benefits the person sitting next to me in church or sitting in the balcony in church or in the choir or here? What benefits not first and foremost me and myself and I, but rather what is best for us? What, what is best for the we? Where is God calling us? Where is God leading us? What encourages us? You see, our pronouns do matter. And when our pronouns are, are solely I, me, and mine, we can't sometimes see over them to see the wider body of Christ and what God is doing, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a family, whether it be a church family. And so Paul is saying here to all of us who have ears to hear that true unity in church, true unity in your family, true unity for Christians in the workplace, it is found not first and foremost for seeking your opinion, seeking your preferences and, and looking after you first and foremost, but rather on our knees, asking God to humble us and to see the needs of those around us and to have eyes to serve those that, that we're married to or to serve those that, that we do life with, quote-unquote, in the life of a church. All of those things are, are important to us as we pursue unity. But then you ask, well, Paul, this seems so far beyond my, my personal inclination. And he would say, you're exactly right. 
That's why these first four verses, they're just an appetizer. The, the main entree of, of what I want you to ponder this morning, Paul would say to you and to me as we pursue unity, is found first and foremost not in you, in me, and us, but rather in him. So Paul, he, he grounds this call to Christian unity by taking our eyes and making them look up to the very person who is the very source of Christian unity. True humanity, church, is found in the person. True humility, church, is found in the person of Jesus. Notice Paul's words starting in verse 5 of Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind, not your natural mind, not the mind that, that is so close to you, but rather the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and the Philippian believers when they heard that they said amen and the church here at Dawson when they heard those words we say amen this is the highest mountain peak in the mountain range that we know as Philippians it very well may be that this passage right here, these seven verses, are some of the most important verses in all of the New Testament and all of Paul's letters. They're rich, rich with, with people throughout the last 2,000 years of church history prying into the very meaning of them. There very well may be no section of Scripture that has had more books and dissertations and scholarly articles written about every word that is before us, starting in verse 5 and ending in verse 11. There are whole books that have been written just about the very composition of this section of Scripture. There have been Christians that have looked at this section and said, boy, this sounds a little bit different than the way Paul normally talks here. And, and it seems as if he is drawing upon sort of this poetic language. And many Christians from, from early in the church's history have looked at this section and said, maybe Paul is drawing upon a, a hymn of the church. Maybe this is one of the earliest examples of a, of a hymn that is praising Jesus Christ. And maybe so. I don't know. We can guess about the origins, and when we get to heaven, we can go to Paul, and we can ask him about that. Is this your words, or are you drawing upon it? It's all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's all given to us. Every phrase in here is ripe for discussion. Exactly what does Paul mean about emptied himself, being in the form of God, do not count equality, all of these phrases here. And in, in the pursuit sometimes of these, of these rabbit trails of scholarly inquiry, we can miss the forest for the trees of exactly why Paul put this section right here in his words, or whether it's an early Christological hymn and puts it here in this section. It is one point. There is disunity, division, the church can splinter and the church can fracture. And in those moments, what brings us together is greater than what distinguishes us. What brings us together is the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you that story. And boy, does Paul do that. It is a story 
that in every way counters sort of the, the upward mobility narrative of the American dream, up, up, in a way. We, we, we celebrate rags to riches types of stories in our country. Someone that comes from nothing and, and gains everything. This is the opposite of the story that we read about and celebrate in the gospel in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It is a riches to rags story. It is a riches to rags and rags to a grave type of story. It is a story not of upward mobility, up, up and away, higher achievement, but rather it is a story of downward descent, downward mobility. And it seems as if he can't go any further and he bursts through the ground and he goes even further. Notice what we discover in verse 6. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying is that Jesus is of the same essence of the Father. He's of the same substance of the Father. That Jesus is equal to God the Father. It isn't that Jesus is sort of second, under, and, and a lesser of divinity, but all the fullness of the divinity of the Father are found in the fullness of Jesus. If you see Jesus, you see the Father. They're the same of the essence and same in substance here. But he didn't hold his heavenly position as something to just be grasped and used for him and himself, me, myself, and I. No, Jesus had the, that, that position and equality with God, and he rather emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It doesn't mean that God looked upon his son and said, you need to give up your divinity to take upon humanity. This is not the emptying. The, the emptying is the emptying of not divinity, but rather a position. So Jesus emptied himself by relinquishing his, his throne at the, at the right-hand throne of the Father by coming to this earth, and he took upon himself 100% humanity while he was 100% divinity. The math doesn't work from a human standpoint, but this is the beauty and the mystery and the paradox of the Christmas story. The one who has it all leaves that place to come to this earth and take upon himself uh, all of humanity. He didn't come as a king he didn't come as a person of prestige. He was born in an out-of-the-way town to nobody parents in a small-town kind of scandal, a teenage, unwed mother. This is what he does here. He humbled himself, verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, do you see the downward descent going further down? He, he's in heaven. He comes to earth. He goes from the earth to the grave. He's not even above in all of his divinity. He has never not existed. And in this moment, he dies. The eternal son of God dies. The cruelest and most shameful of deaths known to humanity at that time. It was the cross was reserved for criminals, slaves. Roman citizens were excluded from it because it was so degrading. The, the goal with a crucifixion wasn't to just kill a person. It was to stomp out the humanity of that person. They were to be a spectacle, degraded, stripped, beaten, 
very nails go through his ankles, go through his wrist. They, they die upon a cross, not in a fast way, but rather in an excruciatingly painful way, unable to hold up the, the weight any longer. A person upon a cross would die under their own weight. They would die of, of suffocation. And this is what the eternal Son of God does for you and for me. And he goes to the very bottom, death, not only death, but death upon a cross. And this is the great reversal because it's not the end of the story. The end of the story is not the grave. The end of the story is not death. But the great reversal of the resurrection is when God the Father sees him in the grave and highly exalts him and bestows upon a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice, downward descent, downward descent, downward descent. We come to the grave, and then we move not just from the grave, but we move quickly all the way back to the eternal throne of God the Father, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the name of Jesus. This is the story of the gospel. And why did all of this happen? From verse 5 to verse 11, all of the richness that is represented by Jesus' path down to the earth, down to the grave, down, down, down to be exalted high. Why did Jesus go on this journey? You know why? For you, for me. This journey was for each and every one of us because you know pride that divides, it is present in each of our hearts. The temptation to look after you, first and foremost, me, first and foremost, that's not taught to us. It's natural to us. To say my way or the highway, that's a part of the human condition that all of us suffer under. And the division of our land, the division of our hearts, the division that can rear its ugly head in a church or in a family, in a marriage, it is, it is embedded in us. And, and we can't solve this problem through our ingenuity. We can't solve this problem through legislation. We can't solve this problem by outspending it or outrelaxing it. We need something else to solve this problem. And that something is a someone and that someone is a savior and that savior's name is Jesus. And so as Christians who understand first and foremost the weight of this sinful plight that we have, we still live even in light of the cross with pride that still rears its head. And we wonder, how, how, do we, how do we move forward in a path of humility? I love Charles Spurgeon, that great British preacher from 120, 130 years ago. But Spurgeon, writing on this very passage, he comes to this place where he, he, he places his congregation, and through the words of Spurgeon, may we be placed before the cross. Notice his words, how then can we be proud? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. 
See the thorn crown. Mark his scourged shoulders. See hands and feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self to mockery and scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs, the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the shriek of our Savior. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you're not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You were so lost. We were so lost that nothing could save us but the sacrifice of God's only begotten. Think of that. And as Jesus stooped for us, as he stooped for you, how yourself in lowliness, bow yourself in lowliness at his feet, a sense of Christ amazing love to us has a greater tendency to humble us and even a consciousness of our own guilt, Spurgeon would say, may the Lord bring us in contemplation before Calvary that our position will no longer be that of a pompous man or a prideful woman, but we shall take the humble place of one who loves much because we have been forgiven much. And then Spurgeon ends by saying, pride cannot live beneath the cross. So let us sit there and learn our lesson and then rise and carry it into practice. Pride, my friends, cannot live beneath the cross. So let us sit there and learn our lesson and then rise and carry it into our homes, into our relationships. Did you hear me? Pride cannot live beneath the cross. So let us all sit there beneath the cross and learn our lesson and rise and carry it into practice. Let us pray.